You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Upstate New York farmer-forager Michael Kokus is a top purveyor of produce to New York City's best restaurants, and he does a pretty good Morrissey, too. Drinking on the Job, now heard in 17 countries. Episode 63 starts now. So I'm blessed today to be sitting with Jen Greer and Michael Kokus. Uh, actually, just going to be talking with Michael, but his wife is here. They have a 100-acre uh, farm in upstate New York, um, and they share their beautiful bounty with some of the elite restaurants in New York City. Of course, the COVID virus has made us change our business model, so we're going to talk about that. But give me the five minutes how a guy from uh, New Jersey and graduate from Rutgers end up on a 100-acre farm uh, dealing with the best restaurants in New York City. How's that happen? Uh, how, how I got here? Well, I'm from the Garden State, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I went to Rutgers, and I, that's how you and I met through a mutual friend. Right. And I met my lovely wife in uh, New York City. We both lived there, and um, uh, she had a small mushroom company. Okay. Uh, and on, for weekend dates, we'd go out and pick mushrooms, and uh, we would, when we had a couple extra, we would go to a restaurant, uh, La Refuge, uh, oh. that we knew the chef there. Oh, perfect. And... Uh, he would buy our extra mushrooms that we foraged and uh, to make a long story short we turned that mushroom hobby into a little business that my wife had in the 80s called layout express and uh some of the photographs on our truck are from the old layout market in paris from the you know it's now the pompidou center it's not it's no longer there but it's where it was called the belly of Paris huh. and uh, uh, so Leal Express was the beginning of it was my wife who started that and going to Rutgers I started as plant science but I ended oh, okay. up as a landscape architect and uh, so but I, I my father was a chef I, I oh, like I to say I grew that. up in the restaurant business but I never really grew up so that's that's a, that's a misnomer, misnomer but um, and my father was a chef, so I knew a lot about food and, and gardening and uh, all this kind of thing kind of came together. The point being is when I was making mushroom deliveries right. for my wife, uh, she's just my girlfriend then, uh, I would notice they're taking whole heads of romaine and just taking the hearts out right. and hearts throwing the rest in the right. garbage. And uh, I saw a lot of sort of weird things going on like that. And everything, everything in the middle of the summer was coming from California. Right. And I love California. And sure. we, we've met Alice Waters and we've done different things with her and things. And we've learned a lot from her. And, uh, and you know, I think it's, it's a sort of a jump ahead. But uh, she, she, I don't, you know, she was just starting then too. But I realized that, you know, we could be growing this stuff in New York where we had moved to our little country house. And, uh, you know, supplying the restaurants maybe in a three, six month basis with a lot of the specialty produce that was coming out of California. Sure. So uh, that's how our business got to start. And um, we actually didn't grow it ourselves. We had a farm in Long Island, uh, Jimmy Pike. 
okay. we're still out there on the Montauk Highway. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, I don't know if it, it, last time I know uh, the farm he rented was on the market for $12 million an acre. At what point do you say, I'm going to uh, do this all myself? Because you do a lot of, you have, uh, we'll get to the CSA program that, you're, that you do now, which is fantastic. Mm. At what point do you make the shift and you're like, I'm going to grow a lot of my own stuff and then give us, a, give us the route you managed to be uh, in great to company with Thomas Keller and John George and Daniel Balud and David Belay, all the top chefs. How do they find you or how did you find them? It has to be certainly a level of quality that you're offering that um, nobody else has. Or Well, I think we uh, got our foot in the door at the right time hmm. when, you know, Daniel Ballou was a young man at one time and just he was at uh, the St. Regis. Uh, he was this, this chef to cuisine at Le Cirque at the time before right. you know, when we started doing business with him. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, uh, it's the people you meet along the way. Mm-hmm. It's the young sous chefs and the receivers. And it's, sometimes it's even the guy who sweeps the floor. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Bill Telepan certainly was, you know, was um, he's great, still a great friend of mine. I love he was just the uh, sous chef and like head of the line, I don't want to like demote him or anything, but right. you know, and he was sneaking down behind the elevator and smoking Paul Malls. <laughs> and uh, I didn't smoke, but it was quite a character, and he's from New Jersey too. And uh, he and and he, we've gone through some great journeys together. A lot of different restaurants that he opened, and now he's this chef uh, at the. Metropolitan Museum. Right. I interviewed uh, Bill when he was chef at Oceana yeah. on my, I did a three-part oyster trilogy and he was my last third person in the chain and just gave me all the insights into New York oysters and the whole oyster project yeah. and then his wellness yeah. in the school thing that he's uh, on the board of, which is uh, pretty crazy. It is the people you meet. Absolutely. Yeah. And it might be, you know, Bill, uh, you know, he's been a lot of restaurants, but I know he lives right by there. So it's probably, a, he's going to have a great job that he can walk to work. Yeah. At, and um, we're looking forward to having our products there at the Met Museum, too. So anyhow, um, you know, I kind of it was kind of a lot of big jumps in the description, the evolution of our company. But, you know, um, creating these relationships with these chefs and they start off with one or two um, restaurants and then have an empire. Mm-hmm. And in those empires are all little clusters of chefs and sous chefs. And if you really like I do a lot of deliveries myself. Um, not anymore, but in, in the early days I do. And we've had events here at the farm. And um, a lot of these secondary people have their own restaurants now. And so that's how our company grew. Mm-hmm. You, typically, um, I think in the beginning, you know, a chef, chefs move around a lot. Sure. You know, in the old days, not so much anymore. But when they would do it, like we would lose that restaurant because the new chef would come in with his purveyors. But we've gotten to the point where um, we have created products that only, I don't say only we can provide, but, you know, we try to keep very unique and do, you know, try to do a little research and have something new. Certainly if like Thomas Keller's using your stuff or yeah. uh, Daniel Balloon is using your stuff, word gets around like, wow, this is a, this is absolutely amazing produce. Morels, which we were talking about earlier yeah. that you're uh, uh, out hunting around for yeah. today. Um, like well, that's, You know what? I learned, you know, yeah. I learned from the chefs about... Uh, you know, when it's good and when it's bad. But I learn more from the farmers and the different purveyors that I, <coughs> and foragers that I work with. Mm-hmm. And uh, early on, uh, one of our 
oldest, it is our oldest farmer, Frank Cervello, taught me that when you grow something, you grow the best possible thing you can. Mm -hmm. Then you take care of it so when it gets to the customer, it's in the best quality. One of the things I learned early on about, um, you know, it's about farming and customer relationships and quality and trying to make a living off of farming is what Frank told me is that you grow the best possible vegetable, the best quality that you can. And then you have at post harvest, you have to cool it down and get it to the customer so it looks just as beautiful as like a wedding bouquet. Then you have to charge a price that you can stand behind it and make a living uh, just out of respect for yourself. And that's, uh, I tell young farmers that, and it's something we practice to this day. We try to grow something that's absolutely the best, and we have to charge a certain amount for it so we can make a living. So your, your original business model is built around more of taking care of these high-end restaurants, and then we get hit with this COVID virus. So what happens to your business model? How quickly does it change? And, uh, and so it's really like a bomb going off for most businesses. Um, so if you were gonna, I'm gonna throw you a total curveball. If we're gonna put this to music, uh, what happened? Uh, is, it, is it the Pogues? Is it... Uh, the Clash. It's uh, New Order. New Order? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> any particular song from New Order? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, you know, and it, it, I don't know the names of any other songs right. as well, except for, you know, the, the I think the London hits. Calling uh, for The Clash <laughs> Yeah, is the, yeah, the weeds well, growing thin. Uh, it, it's a bit helter-skelter. Helter-skelter. So, and, yeah. uh, so how quickly and, uh, do you... Do you how you, soon is now? Yeah. So how quickly do you have to adjust? My, uh, my, we were all freaking out because, um, like Daniel Ballou buys the thousand dozen eggs from us wow. in a week. Wow. And we have to keep things in inventory and we have Loring Place buys sure. broccoli, cauliflower, they're incredible quality and demand and, and they have an incredible menu there and, and, they, and, but, you know, we always have to keep in stock for them for these things and, you know, and when they weren't ordering anymore, we had a lot of inventory, and it's no, nobody's fault. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we had to liquidate it somehow. And uh, so we had my son, who lives in Brooklyn. We started delivering to some boxes to him and his friends in the building because, you know, the quarantine was happening. And right. lines were... There were some, uh, you know, some of the chains, I don't want to mention their names, are having an unfortunate, uh, you know, their employees were getting corona and, you know, they were shutting down stores. So there was this huge demand for home delivery. And um, our last delivery to, let's say, Levin Madison was on a Friday. Right. And that weekend, uh, you know, I went out and I was cutting. I just said, screw it. I have my wood pile that I have to cut for next fall or I'm not going to have any wood. Right. So I went out there and did that and I heard some amazing things and uh, I thought there was this engine going in the background. And so I took off my headphones from like from my chainsaw on and I turned off all the engines around me. And I walked over to where I thought this was motorcycle was and there was this, it was just these frogs in this deep bog making this like incredible croaking sound and i really took pause that this whole virus thing was sort of like okay 
It's sort of like the Fellowship of the Ring at the end when they get to the Mines of Moria and the elves have dug too deep. They've released this demon. Wow. Out of the earth. Okay. And, and I, you know, these, you know, whether it came from people eating walrus bats or whatever. You know, I definitely have been feeling coming on for a couple years of being, especially as the foraging that we haven't really talked a lot about, the foraging that we do. I'll tell you what's happened to me last uh, last year. Last year, as I was foraging and looking for morels, and this is an incredible thing, like I get a little bit further, I'm going to find some more. And I found this newly born deer right in front of me with still the afterbirth on it and oh, wow. covered in this afterbirth. And I should have stopped right there and just went backwards. Mm -hmm. But I went around it and took another step forward just to get around it. And I walked about four or five paces and the mother jumped up in the air and jumped into the river as she was giving birth to the second one. Wow. And I totally regret that. Yeah. That I, instead of my own selfishness of trying to find morels, I should have went the other way and left right. nature as peace. Mm -hmm. And I've been feeling this for a long time, like that we've been trying to take too much. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, we forge like in a very ethical manner, mm -hmm. but still there's some things that should be just left alone. Right. And I think that's, when I heard those frogs croaking and things like that, I really felt like, I'll tell you, they're not even frogs, they're salamanders that live under the ground and mm -hmm. they come out once a year, the spotted salamander that we have in our farm. It's a unique thing here. I'm sure you can look it up on the internet. You can see spotted <laughs> salamander and you can yeah. find their life cycle. Right. They only uh, come out once a year to mate and they go back in the ground and they live under the water, under the ponds, in the ground. <laughs> And that's what the sound I was hearing. And it's like um, living here and seeing all this incredible nature. You know, uh, it's not metaphoric. It's real. It's mm -hmm. this, this real connection that you have to the land when you're foraging. And then when you see the world around you reaching out and our population's growing and people want more and more unique things. Mm -hmm. and people want strawberries in the middle of winter time and things like that. It's like... It all comes together for you and you say like, screw it. Hmm. So I just kept cutting my wood. I didn't care if I yeah. ever delivered to another restaurant again in my life. Right. I felt bad for all my friends and everybody in the uh, restaurant course. business, of course. And, uh, you know, because all our lives are entwined around uh, Absolutely. Yeah. people's, um, you, you know, New York is a great place. We have the greatest food in the world. And that's what our lives are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we should all just take pause mm -hmm. and say, what what is food really about? Yeah. Uh, it's a unique way to um, redo, not redo the, you know, just rethink the food system. You know, I know Dan Barber and Michael Pollan and everything's been talking mm -hmm. about a long time. And it's time to incorporate some of these things. We have a, ton, a, a, a real chance to start over. Yeah. You know, what is a restaurant? What is a supermarket? What is... What is takeout food? Yeah.
you know i i have um i i wonder now do we ever go back to and i'm really excited to get to the csa part of this yeah. but uh i'm wondering do we ever go back to the day where there's 400 people walking into a market picking up an avocado and squeezing it to see whether it's ripe i'm wondering if there's ever a day again where we pick up melons and thump them um, to see if they're ripe. Uh, I can't imagine it now. I think we are deeply scarred by this. Yeah. And the whole six foot at a, shop, at a, uh, at a grocery store is going to change the way we think. Um, and I think what you're doing with the community support agriculture about people su supporting small farms, which we should be, have been doing all along, and high-rent restaurants obviously have, but people in general, um, is where we're heading. I don't see it going back to uh, th that kind of market that we were used to. And I mean, the shopping has changed. Restaurants, are we going to go back to restaurants if waiters have masks on? Um, are we going to be sitting six feet apart from each other and feel comfortable? I think there's a lot of scarring that's going to take a while to, for us to heal from this. Um, well, I think superimposed upon the, uh, you know, the, uh, the urban culture, uh, let's just say, for, use Manhattan as an example, that... Uh, there's been so much implosion of, of, of populations and an implosion is, uh, you know, the first one was when they added a mansard roof in Paris. <laughs> that made, that it, it, it changed the population of Paris by like 15%. And that's why it's there. But now we have this implosion of the high rises in Brooklyn yeah. and Manhattan. It's just like the skyline has changed just in the last five years. So we have all these more people and they're so removed from things yeah. literally removed from things and uh these are all the clients that can in, eat in our restaurants mm -hmm. and i think it's going to be uh a challenge uh, to get them to change into a different model um but you know i think there's you know the internet i we might finally find some good for it where they could order, you know, um, a la carte or a CSA box or something that like online and have it sort of coordinated within their buildings uh, to have a service that just services their buildings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I think, you know, it's going to take, uh, I think this is an opportunity. We have a, a company we're going to start doing business with called Urban Playground. They have a concierge service that, you know, will clean your bathtub or I'll say, uh, put a, a personal trainer over. Right. So we're starting to work with them. Uh, we're, we've been um, just kind of going through a lot of talks and seeing, you know, they have a lot of uh, clients who have a lot of investments in their apartments right. and uh, in their co-ops and things like that. And uh, they're trying to offer, uh, offer our services to them and help like what I just described um, offering deliveries to building that coordinated within the uh, different residents of the building to um, buy produce, milk, um, you know, local farm products that are commodities 
But that doesn't mean they can't be special. So. Right. I, but I, I think this is what we're talking about. There has to, there's a monumental shift, like you were saying. Uh, these buildings that are gone vertical, they're not part of us anymore. There is a disconnect. And that disconnect is a reflection in the food chain, right? People yeah. wanting strawberries in the dead of winter or, you know, well, somebody can fly them in from Chile. I don't think we can do that anymore. Particularly the globalization is what we're talking about. We sometimes feel like the COVID virus is only in our state. Or yeah. in our neighborhood, yeah. um, and then you you look around. And no, it's a world virus. It's a global thing. And I think part of it is we've become uh, greedy. Yeah. Um, you know, I want. I it's the Veruca salt. I want it now. Yeah. I want my asparagus now and yeah. so they don't uh do local let's talk about what csa is because this is really interesting because i thought this is this is the way we should be going so it's a um so basically how did someone sign up for your your incredible boxes i got one mm -hmm. last week it had uh beets radishes arugula potatoes carrots and it was some of the best produce produce yeah. i've had in a while so tell us what that's about because i think philosophically this is what people should be aligning themselves with and not trying to go back to the market when you're talking about the population of 12 million people or 9 million people however many live in Manhattan right now or in Brooklyn and everything mm -hmm. is uh, it's you have to you have to categorize it into two different tribes mm -hmm. one tribe loves to eat out and yes. loves to get takeout and never used their kitchen ever <laughs> and, and coincidentally, they have a $10,000 Viking range in their apartment yes. that they put their pizza boxes on. But, but they ahead. have a kick-ass wine cellar. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yes. So just to, to be clear so people know, it's, it's community-supported agriculture, and yeah. they buy direct produce from you. So you kind of cut out the middleman, which is yeah. good, right? Yeah. Uh, so they're getting top-quality produce at a much better price, and that's the model we're talking about when we say CSA. Yes, okay. and that that happens when we're in season, okay. and that season starts basically early June, and it goes all the way to Thanksgiving, sometimes mm -hmm. December. I mean, we had stuff, we had local produce up until like February, March this year because mm -hmm. we had great, just great storage crops. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Okay. Going back, going, uh, you know, to talking about like uh, what we're doing now in Brooklyn is. Um, we're buying from farms basically from Texas and Florida and bringing in different produce where we can because we're not in season right now. And uh, But we do have uh, local broccoli, broccoli rob, greenhouse mescaline, and some uh, things we're filling in with. Uh, but, you know, this our season, as each week goes on, we'll have more and more to go. But my thing is, like, why aren't more people doing this? Um, and I think people will. I, I have friends in Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, because right. we... <laughs> I think about this all the time. All like, right. Me, myself, and, like, anybody, you go to Whole Foods, it's like, oh, my gosh, I got that, like... Green tea emulsified shaving cream, right. you know, because it's just <laughs> right, like yeah. you know, there's a you get this high right. from shopping, and yeah, the people in stores know how to do it well, and there's marketers they know how to do it well, they know how to offer you. You end up spending forty dollars on produce and two hundred dollars on personal products, right? You know, from hair cream to whatever, you know. Yeah. And they know how to do it well. It's seductive and everything. It's a hard, uh, you know, these big corporations, you know, they do a good job. They, they, do, they do a fair job trying to support local farms. But, you know, uh, 
with social distancing and things like that, I think Amazon is probably going to take a lot of that market up from them. Yeah. Well, and Amazon owns Whole Foods now, yeah, so, so you know they they they're way ahead of the game on everybody. So our little part is to I guess to educate people to you know be more locavores and aware of their you know where their food comes from and the carbon footprint and all these things that I'm purposely making trying to say cliche are going to come up to the front burner now mm -hmm. when they were just rhetoric in the back from you know hippies that sit around the coffee table and think right. like how can we start our next CSA you know it's it's going to come to the front burner where um, people are going to realize you know this is important that's important I want to get this from my local farmer I want to get this from my local preparer I want to support my local grocer down the street right and I think it's going to be a little lot more social conscious about everything I you know maybe not toilet paper but everything like your toothpaste right. and everything after that yeah, I don't see so. people going back with. I I, I use the avocado thing because I always think as I go to the market, I always pick up avocados. I love them, uh -huh. and I always have to squeeze them. And I'm thinking, and I was in the market the other day. I'm thinking, how many people have touched this avocado prior to me touching it? And that's yeah. the whole thing I'm talking about. Like this whole model is going to change. What we're doing is, um, and it started off with my son and my good friend Irene Kwan, who's a, a caterer in Manhattan. She uh, and she has organized on her block over 70 people, 70 families hmm. who come and pick up at her doorstep and we drop off our CSA box there. Great and uh, that's on um, uh, Sterling Place in Brooklyn. And she, you know, she just has a great reputation in the food business and her block is very organized hmm. with all the sort of block websites and things like that, neighborhood connections. They're just a little bit more connected now. Yeah. Through their, they're all buying their food from the same place. And uh, the first week I did it, I opened up the back of the truck, which is about four feet off the ground. And I'm looking down the block and I'm seeing 70 people lined up six feet apart. Wow. And um, uh, I felt like I was in some refugee movie where I was handing out like, care packages to people and well that's just my own yeah. like head where, where i was going and things like that so you that. shifted your model fast which is it was brilliant because you're yeah. you, you saved your business how does it feel not going into you know the high-end restaurants and standing for a chef who is uh critiquing your product face to face like they usually do and chefs can be really uh intense human beings and then just pulling up with a truck and feeding the masses what's the difference feeling wise for you well the uh the impersonal the personal connection is amazing mm -hmm. with your clients right on uh, the very first we do a home delivery too for people who can't um, come to the sites because they don't want to leave their house for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And the very first delivery I did was to um, a man answered the door. And it was a woman I knew from a per previous, she just knew me from the business and she called me, she called up, she didn't even know we had a website. And she goes, can you deliver me some food? And so I thought it was whatever, so much was going on. When I made the first delivery, I saw that she was like in her third trimester hmm. and it, it hit me and the looks on their face that they were not leaving the house no matter what. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine being pregnant and you know, you still got a couple months to go 
and this killer viruses on the street that not many people know about. That was six weeks ago. Right. And that had a huge effect on me that I'll tell you, I always, it's a feather in my cap to say I sell to you. All the Dans and the John Georges and the, all these guys that are great to me and uh, everything. But when I gave that box of food to that pregnant lady's husband, I felt for the first time in a long time I was doing something that was beyond good. Yeah. That's, that's great. It's a good feeling, right? Yeah. And then the next five or six people were like that. It was a little weird because I'm a gregarious and friendly guy. Like nobody wants to talk to me. Yeah. And I got over it. They just yeah. leave the box there. Yeah. And everybody's wearing masks. Yeah. It's this whole new culture you have to adopt to. Yeah. And uh, so all and so even when we're handing out boxes and practicing social distances, we just leave them in the back of the truck, and people come and get mm. them. And uh, so many people. Uh, just say thank you, thank you for doing this. Yeah. And the last person who pulled up here today at our farm says, I haven't had to go to the grocery store in six weeks. We're not trying to put the grocery store on the business, we're not trying to do anything. We just saw an, a need hmm. and uh, we walked this. I was walking, I felt like, you know, for me personally, who is, you know, I think very deeply about everything I do and it has to mean something that I had was felt like I was walking along between opportunity and opportunism. Mm-hmm. And I just really wanted to uh, send a good message out about what we do and why we're doing it. And, you know, it's uh, uh, we were just such a small company. We were able to pivot so fast and do that. The same time I was able to pay my bills because we owed, I think I started to tell you in the beginning, we owed a lot of money to farmers for the eggs, the sure. milk, the cheese, everything we yeah. sell. I was able to pay those back. Um, but when I was out there cutting wood and listening to the frogs, I didn't know how I was going to do that. Yeah. But I knew I had to take pause. Yeah. And I had to, and uh, it's like um, sometimes I close to my eyes, hmm. sometimes things come to me in dreams. Hmm. And it was like that experience without ever going to sleep. It just, wow. everything happens so yeah. fast. I think a lot of people sitting back and now trying to think about it and rethink their life and what it's going to look like on the other side of this. Um, there's a proverb, a Chinese proverb, food is the God of the people. And uh, I think about it a lot because I watch uh, the way I'm shopping or how I'm eating. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's kind of crazy and um, is the James Beard Foundation came out and with all this money pouring into restaurants said that uh, they feel like 80% of the restaurants are not being taken care of. Um, and, uh, and I totally believe that. I think uh, what... The thing that bums me out the most, I think, is you mentioned Alice Waters. And I, I think about yeah. the way American cuisine has evolved over the last... I don't know, 30 years, how the farm-to-table thing was almost become cliche. Like, of yeah. course, it's farm-to-table, but more so, a lot of the smaller restaurants have adopted that. And I've, I feel those smaller restaurants like Prune uh, and, and Peasant and, and Forge and small restaurants where the chef is really, you know, cares about their product, they're kind of like the, uh, the college radio uh, of our time, the alternative rock. You know, they're like, they're, they're just playing to a different uh, vibe. And, uh, and they 
feel most hurt and injured by not getting any of the money. I mean, recently, Ruth Chris and Danny Meyer were, I call it stimulus shamed into giving back the, I don't know, collectively $30, $40 million back mm-hmm. to um, uh, back to the, the care program to help. But here's we're going to stop and take a quick drink because you're going to need it after I tell you this. So first, I'm going to tell you what we're drinking. We're dr- drinking Domain Montvac Gigandas, which is a teeny little appellation outside Chateauneuf-du-Pape. Cecile is probably fifth generation female winemaker, all certified organic, no pesticides. It's mostly Grenache uh, with a little bit of Senso and uh, I think some Mouvedre. But a really, really great wine. And I'm going to say you're going to have to take a sip and tell me what you think because one of this next uh, thing I tell you is going to make you very happy that you took a drink. <laughs> okay. Four generations of females before Females, her. yeah, yeah. And I'm glad I pointed that out because yeah. I thought fifth generation, but then she was the female because that's very unique. It is unique, and she has yeah. two daughters. Yeah. So it's Domaine de Montfac. Um, I, I love these wines. In particular, I was thinking about the Morels because Morel season and all the stuff. Yeah. But but here's why you're going to need to drink. So um, there's a committee that gets appointed uh, to f- uh, help where these funds go. And I want to tell you some of the executives on this committee. It's not a mm-hmm. bunch, but it's Coca-Cola, Pepsi, McDonald's, Wendy's, Subway, uh, Papa John's. And then there were a few chefs thrown in just for color. Uh, but like, if that's not enough to make you think what is going on, that these are the people that are responsible for funneling the money to restaurants that need help and care. Do you think they're going to give money to some small little restaurant? Um, this, these little, no, they're going to go to all these big chain restaurants that kind of dug us this hole uh, for where we are uh, as far as health. I mean, coronavirus is, is taking down large a large part of the population, but 50% of these people are have underlying causes like obesity and diabetes, and because they're not getting the food they need, some of it's out of ignorance, some of it is that they live in food deserts. There's nowhere to get good food. There's no CSA. Um, and so that's why applaud what your shift is going to be the big thing can help people. Well, you know... It, you know what our administration does is like you know we could have a whole show about that easily yeah. and it's uh, you know it's disgusting what's going on and uh, I've never been one uh, I actually have a USDA grant in now to help um, some families uh, in the Bronx uh, mothers who uh, who go to daycare we have like a box and that was uh, charted to get a lot of funding of that money and they never got it and so it's a surprise that's yeah. of exactly what i just said you think some coca-cola executive gives a shit about some family and oh, whether it's newark or the bronx or they, like, they're not even appropriately designed to even make any decisions right. because they, they run restaurants right they don't know anything about restaurants they know how to add syrup to corn syrup right. and water and carbonate water corn syrup which is the other thing? Why isn't government fund government government funds farms to lose money or to do high fructose corn syrup and soybeans? Why don't they do more small farms? And um, oh, because it's easy. Yeah, I guess it's e- easy, and we know who's lobbying in Washington. Also, because it's easy, right. it's exportable, it's access. It's not. It's not about bounty. It's about quantity, and uh, they just you know what's going on. I think um, rather than waste our time talking about the gravy-sucking pigs of our government, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. think I think I think that the people that you mentioned and, and the 
the artisanal chefs, the college radio type yeah. chefs, um, the kind of uh, higher end chefs that we deal with, um, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. uh, that New York, we're resilient, we're kick ass, mm-hmm. we're going to solve this. And I think it's going to bring the landlords humbling to their knees. Yeah. They're going to be clamoring for people to, to fill these. There's only so many CVSs that yeah. you can put in Manhattan. And people are going to have one a demand to go out and eat again. Yeah. And these people are going to re- reign supreme because commercial real estate is going to have to be totally rethought. Yeah. So people who are listening, I'm going to give you, I'll, I'll blow your mind a little bit. Uh, so what a lot of people don't know, pre-corona, uh, 35% of commercial real estate is empty because greedy landlords are going, you know what? Um, and I know firsthand because I know chefs who are trying to negotiate their lease, leases. There are restaurants in New York paying $100,000 uh, a month. So over a million dollars in rent. The average probably is about fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars a month. Um, and to your point, is it was already beginning to crumble, and this just highlighted. And there's going to be a huge reckoning. Uh, isn't it interesting though that we have pharmacies are open and McDonald's and Wendy's are open in the city, but it's just pharmacies and them uh, who are kind of. Well, yeah, I heard one statistic that they the restaurant doesn't start making money till day twenty-seven of the month of the month, right? So everything yeah. that, that goes into the all the investors' pockets, which is they deserve, they put a lot of money in it, mm. is made in the last three or four days of right. the month. And so of those three days, think about this. Well, of three days, there's 30 days in April. Of Tell me how days, that's fair. How's it fair? But God forbid, like in the wintertime, hey, a snowstorm just knocked out a day. Uh, a flood just knocked out a day. Yeah. I mean, you're like, you're, you're bankrupt before you know it. Uh, let's pretend they're going to hang you tomorrow morning at 7 a.m gonna hang you in the gallows 7 a.m. tomorrow morning what are you eating what are you drinking and what are you listening to and then we're gonna go out on this <laughs> uh, Dom Perignon okay uh, I love champagne myself yeah. the holy cow ice cream cake which is made by the local dairy down the road here okay holy cow ice cream cake okay, okay. and uh, what am I listening to entree you gonna have an entree that's your dessert okay my entree would be, I have to have a lobster one more time. My lobster roll. Lobster roll, yes. All right. I Actually, think lobster, lobster roll champagne is pretty badass uh, yeah. food pairing, by the way. Yeah. So, yeah, I would go classic lobster. Cool. And what are you listening to? Uh, the rope is swinging. They're walking you up to, what are you listening to? I am the sun and the air, the shyness that was criminally vulgar. Or uh, is that the, the Smiths? Yeah. Oh shit! Very good. <laughs> I'll go there. I'll go there. That's oh, awesome. I love yeah. Morrissey. Yeah. Uh, his voice is haunting as well. That's a great thing. You see, yeah. I can see you swinging in the wind to that. Hopefully yeah, smiling because of your lobster and your champagne. You're you went out with a big grin. Well, it's uh, it's it's the most swaggering tune around. If I had to walk up to the gallows, <laughs> okay. I knew I was going to die. Um, so I want people to log onto your site. I want people to learn more about CSA. Um, your amazing produce before. I, by the way, it's it's ramp season. Michael's telling me so. Look for ramp. We're gonna go out and pick ramps gonna, right after this. You yes, can't, we, which you can't do okay. on radio. Yeah, we're gonna do that. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll shoot a little video. And maybe we'll hit. We'll do some morels. All right. I like to add on here. This is Bragioso. Okay. That uh, usually this time we have the whole staff from Stone Barns and Blue Hill come up. Oh, cool. And we we cook for them, 
and uh, I'm coming to that next year. Okay, we'll be right. we'll come next year, right. and uh, we pick ramps and we forage and we find morels and we have this great. Usually, we smoke or grilled chickens. All and everything's wow. local, and we it's one of these things where I told you in the beginning it's where we meet these young sous chefs on their way up. And it creates this longevity for, and it's just beautiful it. meeting uh, passionate young people about food. And Dan hires people from all over the country yeah. and all over the world. We get to meet, we get to meet the greatest kids. And uh, but I'll tell you, it's really funny because when you go to a uh, Blue Hill and Stone Barns, it's like, it's like you know they have this one dish. It's like a carrot on a nail. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I go, like a little fence. Of veggies. Yeah, and you get like a, a, a shot glass with a turnip in it. But <laughs> when they come and eat at my place, yeah. They fill up their plate with ribs and potato salad, and, <laughs> and I always, I always have to stop. And I, once we get a speech, and I, my speech is always like this: How come when I go to Blue Hill, I get this carrot on a pin? And, That's my problem. You, you drop a lot. Yeah, of money and look at and look at your yeah. plates now. Yeah. Where is the disconnect here with food? He's got a fantastic book, Third Plate, if you haven't read it. It's awesome. I yeah. recommend everyone to read it. Um, I'm glad we could end on you not swinging from the end of a rope to the Smiths. Uh, so how do people, uh, what's your website? Um, UpstateFarmsNY.com. UpstateFarmsNY.com. There you go. And uh, you deliver to Brooklyn and... Um, uh, every From Long Island City to uh, Park Slope right now. So, um, you know, Carol Gardens and... Um, so check it out. I have to tell you, I had the produce yeah. last week. I'm taking another box the with wise. me. Unbelievable. And I guarantee you, you'll spend half the time in the markets now because you'll be getting these boxes. And half the time in the market could save your life these days. So, hey, I want to thank Michael for being on the show. And, um, and please check out his produce. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks thank, for having me. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. <laughs>